You are now listening to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahire, and today I have special guest Erica Cooney joining me. Erica, aka the Burnout Professor, is a mental well being educator and former professor, clinical director, and licensed psychotherapist. In this episode, We talk all about burnout. Erica explains what burnout is, what happens in our body, both physiologically and psychologically, and different aspects on how we can overcome burnout. I got so much insight and information from this episode, and I know that everyone who listens to it is going to glean some kind of insight into how they can take care of their mental well-being as well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Erica. Hi, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I mean, I've been following you for a while and, you know, I've gone through my own burnout journey and your account has actually been one of them that has been so helpful for me personally. So I'm just so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm humbled to hear that. And it makes me I don't want to say I'm happy when I hear that because I don't ever want anyone to be going through burnout, but it also makes me feel that, hey, I'm doing the right thing by just openly talking about my own story and then able to bring my knowledge with it into the picture because I don't think um, we have a society that really embraces this idea of alignment versus hustling. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for that. Truly honored. Mm-hmm. So why don't we jump right into your story and your background and how you got into talking about burnout in your field of work? Wasn't by choice. <laughs> <laughs> the universe is funny that way. Um, so 2014, 2015, I would have told you I had a black cloud over my head and that anything could go wrong in my life actually did go wrong in my life. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was driving to work and all of a sudden a Mack dump truck merged into my lane. He didn't see me. I had nowhere to go and I'm lucky to be here, but more than luck, I'm blessed to be here. And, you know, it was a pretty gruesome accident. I'm not going to go into details or anything, but when um, I arrived at the hospital, they weren't sure if they were going to be able to save my foot. And this was important for my story because this was something I was a dancer. I took dance for 18 years. I competed, right? And I was still dancing. And so, and dance was my way of connection, right? And to kind of get back to me when I was stressed out. And so the thought of, oh my gosh, you know, everything that I've known is going to drastically shift. And um, I was in the hospital for a week and then three month recovery time with my foot up in the air. And um, wow. I am lucky to say, and I'm blessed to say, I mean, I put the hard work in as well that um, I had a great doctor and I'm able to dance in heels again. I walk in heels, you know, and you wouldn't know unless I told you. Right. And I'm like, Hey, you want to see a cool scar? Um, But 
that was the first time I probably sat still ever in my life. And I had to learn how to sit still. Right. And then things started to unravel and I had, I never saw it coming. I didn't know it was coming. And when I mean by unraveling a long-term relationship ended and looking back where I am now, seven years out, it was the best thing to have happened because it was an extremely toxic relationship. I'm not putting blame on either one of us. It was the way we related to one another that was just extremely toxic. And it, we just brought out our wounds, right? We just knew how to do that without even trying. And it took me a long time to really start to understand self-love in another way. And so then um, when that long-term relationship ended, I had to move back home with my parents and I was in my mid thirties. Right. And I'm like, what the hell am I missing here? What the heck am I missing? You know, I was sitting on the floor with a bottle of wine, ugly crying, my dog next to me, like, how did I get here? You know, I have a master's degree. I'm a licensed therapist at this point. Mm -hmm. What, how did I not see the signs? Like, what am I missing here? And, um, if that wasn't the end, nope, not the end for Erica. <laughs> um, a couple of months later, I was actually fired from my job as a supervisor. And that was a huge shock to me. Very humbling experience because I was never somebody to be fired. I was always promoted, always a trainer. Like it didn't matter any position in any of the careers I ever had. I never even really gotten written up before. Right. Mm. So I was like, okay, I'm missing something here. So let me go back to talk therapy. And I say go back because before I went to grad school to become a therapist, I did go to talk therapy. I explored all my childhood wounds and my family dynamics. There's not a nook and cranny that I was going to have to find because I'm like, I already know it all. And then not to mention in grad school, we explored that as well. So I was like, no, this isn't it. Talk therapy isn't it. I would walk out of there and I'm like, nope, I'm still missing something, but what is it? So I went and dove headfirst into the woo-woo side. And it's not that woo-woo anymore. It's more mainstream than it's ever been, right? Yeah. But I learned meditation. I learned about essential oils. I learned how food is medicine and understanding more about gut health and really starting to look at things from a root cause perspective versus a symptomology, like what, let's just put the bandaid on it. And I also became an IFS, which is internal family systems therapist at this point. And you know, that's a trauma informed modality with roots in shamanism and it's evidence-based it's widely known now. And that was another game changer for me when I got trained in that. And, um, then I was teaching human development at the university. So when the pandemic hit, oh, I wow. made the decision to back out of teaching at the university. And I was said, I'm ready for the world to be my classroom. And, um, I was like, so what am I going to call myself? And I was like the burnout professor. Yeah. Because when I was teaching, I was known as the self-care professor. Everybody, I had that reputation. She's going to talk about breathing, how to breathe in the moment. What are you going to do for your self-care? Because that's all she cares about. Yeah. <laughs> I embraced that. You know, it was like, I know I'm teaching human development, but I'm embracing because self-care is important. You have to have that. You have to know how to do that. So, and here I am. Wow. Yeah. You know, that I mean, that would be amazing just to have a, a prof like that. I'm in university right now getting a psych degree and, you know, some teachers, they're, they're pretty good about it, but a lot of them, like they're just there to teach and, and you know how grad school is, right? Like, um, guaranteed you know, to have a breakdown. <laughs> yeah. You're guaranteed to have a breakdown. You're like, I'm studying psychology. Like, 
why like why would that be like criteria do you know what I mean so what exactly is burnout can you explain what happens on a physiological level but is also on a psychological level when we're burnt out Heck yeah, I can. And I'm, I love how you already set it up and framed it because that's usually how I start. I say it's two parts here. It's more than just the mind. It is more than that. It's also the physiological state and the physiological state is known as adrenal fatigue, right? Or Mm -hmm. adrenal exhaustion. Excuse me if I can talk for a second. Um, so it's understanding that your body has been pumping out adrenaline and cortisol for way too long. There has been no downtime and your nervous system is hijacked, right? And it's not able to get back to baseline. You know, we can call it rest and digest for simple terms, right? And when you have this constant go, go, go with no rest, your body gets depleted and it gets to this point where it takes over and says, you're not going to do anything about it. Well, I'm going to do something about it and you're not going to have a choice about it. Right. And then the next piece to it is also the mind piece, the psychological piece, the construct that we have about it. And it's this feeling of overwhelm, right, where there's no hope there. You're just helpless. And I also say, you know, it's that point where you just say yes when you want to say no. And you're just like going through the motions. You're on automatic pilot and you just you don't know your ass from your elbow anymore. You lose connection with who you are at your core and you lose connection to your body. Mm. So what happens when that happens, when we lose that connection? So this is how you can be successful at work, but be a hot mess inside. Right. And, um, that was me. I own that. And I perfectly I'm okay with people knowing that because this is part of the journey. You know, this is why there is a lot of us out there that are able to have what seems to be a well put together work life. But on the, when you are on the inside, you're nowhere near well put together. You don't have this ability to self-regulate in the moment and you don't have this ability to take care of yourself in a way to keep you connected. Right. And so I think there's this misconception out there that, um, what does it mean to self-regulate? Because I don't know. Let me put it to you this way. I don't know if you found this out yet either. Um, you don't know you're burnt out till it's too late. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like so, way too late. <laughs> yeah. It's like you got hit by the Mac dump truck at this point. <laughs> yeah. So with that being said, you know, when we talk about burnout recovery and burnout prevention, I don't really know anybody that does burnout prevention because unless they've already experienced the burnout, right? Right. Because they don't know they're burnt out or they don't know they're heading in that way. Cause if before that Mac dump truck, I would have told you I was great. I was phenomenal at handling stress. I was a crisis worker. I was trained to do it. I was cool under pressure. I actually excelled under pressure. You know, I was that last minute Nelly in grad school writing my paper, like my capstone paper. I was still working on it that morning of that. I had to handed it in and, you know, I was fine. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, but now don't put me in that situation. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in that situation. I choose not to be in that situation now because that inner peace or that self-regulation means everything to me now. 
do I, can I handle stress? Yeah, I can handle stress. I just don't want to do it all the time anymore. I'm like, I'm good with that. I want alignment. I want to go where it flows. So mm-hmm. I know I went a little bit on a tangent there, but that's no, that, where, yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about self-regulation, um, some people might not understand what that means. Could you just explain a little bit what self-regulation means? Sure. You know, as human beings, we are, I'm going to start here and say, you know, like when we come out of the womb, we are born for connection, right? We're born to connect to other human beings. And the first step is co-regulation. So we learn how to get our insides calm. We learn how to slow our heart rates down when things get exciting or agitated or, um, just stressful. We're going to use the word stressful for just the sake of it right now. And we learn, we're supposed to learn that at a very young age, right? And then sometimes we're not able to learn that at a very young age for multitude of reasons. And it's because our parents are not able to be there for us to do that because they're struggling with their own Mm self-regulation and it has nothing. It's not because they're bad right? I need to make this clear. It's they, everyone has their own ways of learning how to do things and they're doing the best they can. So when we don't learn how to self-regulate or co-regulate and then learn how to self-regulate right after that, we start to self-regulate from a place of protection versus a place of connection. So true self-regulation is being able to sit still, not feel like your skin's crawling, not feel like your heart's starting to race or like, oh, I I should be doing something in the mind going a mile a minute and thinking of everything that needs to happen. But instead to be able to be in the moment and be curious Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. This sounds so weird, right? Yeah. That's probably quite difficult when people have been through trauma and they don't, they don't know how to sit still. Correct. It is hard. It is extremely hard. And it does feel like your skin's crawling when you first sit still for the first time, because all of a sudden, all of these sensations that you have been, your brain has been putting, shutting down, right, is coming to light and you don't know what to do with it. You don't have a toolbox to do anything with it. So I don't always recommend somebody who's gone through trauma or has like a developmental trauma to try to do meditation right off the bat. Cause it's going to mm-hmm. be uncomfortable. You're going to be like, this ain't for me. I ain't doing this. And then you're going to try it and then you'll fail at it. And then you'll be like, see, it's not for me. Right. It's a skill that we have to learn and how to do. So the first thing that I usually say is let's just focus on our breath. Mm-hmm. Can we, let's just start there. It's simple. And I'm not even talking breath work, like how breath work has become so popular. Simple breathing. Where's your breath? Like take a moment right now. Where is your breath falling? Is it in your throat? Sometimes it's in our throat. Sometimes it's halfway. And other times it's all the way at the bottom of our lungs. And the goal is when you are learning your breath is to see if you can get your breath to the bottom of your lungs. And that's how you can start to become in tuned with your body. Simple Mm -hmm. like that. Nothing drastic, nothing huge. And just take it from there step by step. Mm -hmm. Because our breath regulates us right? Yes. It, it calms the nervous system. You know, we talk, it depends on how you're breathing, but yes, depends it does. On how you're breathing. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yes, so do you think that the precursor to burnout, you know, at its root is not dealing with some of these past things that we've been through, which cause us to want to go, 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 not sit still. Do you think that like 
some form of trauma is always at the root of burnout. I do 100%. I would even go and say it's developmental trauma with attachment, disrupted attachment. Interesting. Can, Can you explain that further? Sure. Absolutely. So for the sake of this conversation, we're going to break down attachment into the two categories. I'm not going to go into the all four of what they are. Okay. Just to keep it simple. So there's two categories. There's a secure attachment and then there's insecure attachment with secure attachment. That means your insides match your outsides. Your primary caregivers responded to you. They understood what your cues meant and they were able to help you in ways to help you self-soothe with that co-regulation. When we have insecure attachment, this is disruptive attachment. And this is also known as developmental trauma as well, just to put that in terms. When you have that insecure attachment, you start to distrust your environment Mm -hmm. and you don't think that your primary caregivers can respond to your needs that you need in the moment. The easiest explanation I can come up with is, you know, that old saying of let the baby cry it out, just let it cry it out, right? No. No, no, no. Right. That baby is trying to tell you something. And it's our job as the caregiver to figure out what they need so that they can get back to that baseline. Because Mm -hmm. the worst thing we can do is let that baby cry, cry, cry. And they just tire themselves out. But that nervous system on the inside never gets to baseline where it's in rest and digest or calm. So when that continually happens, where that nervous system's disrupted because the primary caregiver was missing the cues on what the baby needed, or was like a helicopter totally on it and smothering or totally not engaged because they have their own stuff that they need to be doing. You develop this distrust, which keeps your nervous system hijacked because you don't know where to look in your environment for safety. And so in my opinion, When we go into the workforce, if we didn't know we had these disrupted attachments and we don't understand that our nervous system's already hijacked, we are bringing all of that with us to the workforce. And so we are gravitating towards jobs that are comfortable for us. I mean, I come from trauma, right? Disrupted attachment trauma. And heck, that's what made me a great crisis worker because that's what I'm in my family. That's my role, right? I'm a crisis Mm -hmm. person. So it's interesting to me that we don't talk more about developmental trauma when it comes to burnout and how that is the precursor, because all of your thoughts, you can call them limiting beliefs. You can call them your um, old records that you have playing in your mind directly impact how you interact with your job, your coworkers, your bosses, and the system that you work at. Mm. So if you are somebody who's a people pleaser in your family, Think of how you act at work right now. Do you say yes when you're like overloaded and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get this done, but they asked me, so I have to say yes. Otherwise, they're not going to think I can do my job or they're going to take their love away from me. So I think that's a very important point to talk about with burnout. So I'm glad you asked me about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's super important because I think a, a lot of people are just like, oh, well, I just ran myself too hard. I mean, you and I, right. We, we want to know more. You're like, but why did you right? like, don't you want to explore that? And they're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I don't know if it's my, um, time of being in the field, you know, 15 years, I kind of stopped asking after a while. And I just started telling, and I'm like, Hmm, that sounds like you had a kind of a system at home. And I look fall where it lands. And if it disrupts, it disrupts. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but I should also highlight that um, 
I am not a psychotherapist anymore. This is what I've been, you know, so like when I interact with people now, I have that opportunity to be that much more direct, right? right. And really disrupt um, in my conversations. But like in that therapist role, it is a different kind of approach, but you still are able to disrupt by going, hmm, it sounds like, right? It's just a different approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What happens when our nervous system stays turned on for too long other than burnout? Like I'm sure you're familiar with Gabor Mate. Yes. So are you, do you agree that these things start to show up in our body? Oh my gosh. Yes. Because, um, you know, that's even before, um, Gabor Mate, right. There's Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Mm. There's Dr. Bruce Perry, you know, this is developmental trauma. This is trauma work. This is, um, trauma research. This is neuroscience. Right. Mm. And we do know that the emotions that we do not express the body's going to express you know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's going Mm -hmm. to come out one way or another. And that is why, you know, with the ACEs research, you know, the adverse childhood experiences research, right? Yeah. You know, with over 18,000 participants and all that data that they received, right? You know, you're more likely to become physically ill. Yeah. It's not just, it's not mind. It's the body because the nervous system is your body. It's the you know, the vagus nerve, that's like the 10th, what is it? The cranial 10th? I forget how they say it in technical terms at the moment, but yes, you know, that is a highway, the biggest highway of nerves in our entire body. And it touches almost every organ. Mm -hmm. So if it's hijacked, it's not going to operate. The rest of the organs aren't going to operate accurately or the way that they should. And does this kind of play into polyvagal theory? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, what I've learned, there's people out there that believe in it. There's folks that do not believe in it. And I'm going to say, this is what we can all agree on. We have a nervous system. We have a system that can go from sleeping to calm, to alert, to agitated, to fear and panic. We can have those stages, right? And we do know when something traumatic happens, it's not the actual event. It's our body's response that determines whether or not it's trauma or not. Mm -hmm. And if we stay in that traumatized state long enough, that's when the physical illness starts to happen. And then we can call it mental illness as well. We'll start to see diagnoses, symptoms start Mm -hmm. to present. Mm -hmm. You know, it it makes me think about all of the struggling that people have gone through with COVID and with loneliness, um, you know, our mind and the health of our mind can't be overstated. No, I'm shaking my head. Like everyone can see me. No, No, it cannot be overstated. Yeah. Yeah. So these things do show up in our body. So say someone's listening and they're, they're kind of feeling burnt out and they're like, okay, well, if I'm feeling burnt out, maybe it's like I've over. I've overstepped myself. What can someone do when they get to that place? There's lots that we can do. I think that's the biggest message I want to send to everybody. There is so much we can do as human beings. We are powerful Mm. beyond what we're taught in society. And it's beyond the disease model that we're taught to believe in. 
And so I think that's what makes me a little different in my approach is I come at it from a wellness empowerment stance versus a disease approach. And, you know, it comes down to understanding that you can navigate that nervous system, physiological state, anytime, anywhere, in any given moment. And it is simply through our breath. And it's not what I was talking about earlier. There's certain breathing exercises that we can do, you know, um, one of them is the physiological size, which was, um, I'm not saying it was founded because <laughs> this is something our bodies naturally do. And it's something we do right before we go to bed as we're transitioning into sleep and in sleep. And this is also, if you think of a four-year-old kid who had a meltdown and you're like, okay, let's have a break. Let's calm down for a moment. I need you to use your big boy words, big girl words. And then we can talk about this. What do they do? They go, <gasps> right? I think yeah. it's like a two, double sigh in and yeah. then a sigh out and double breath in sigh out. And this was actually confirmed in Stanford university's research lab, um, that this physiological sigh is the best way for us to regulate our nervous system in real time. Oh, and I believe this was in 2016. I could be misquoting the year, but it was in 2016 at Stanford university. And so you do it one to three times double breath in through the nose and then blow out your body will get back into a calm state immediately. Wow. That is so interesting and so helpful. And I can't tell you how many times I've used that when I'm in a meeting and I'm like, Oh, I'm ramping up because I hear somebody saying I don't agree with. Right. Yeah. Or when I'm having a conversation with some loved ones that are strained and you know, it's, you can use it anytime and no one needs to know. I think mm -hmm. that's the best part. Mm -hmm. And another technique, which isn't as effective, but it does do the job is the um, breathing technique where you breathe in and then you exhale out longer than what you breathed in. Right. You know, some people talk about the four, seven, eight technique, breathe in through the nose, hold for seven counts, exhale out for eight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's another one that's talked about a lot, box breathing, box breathing is like when you inhale for three counts, hold, exhale for three counts, hold for three counts. This was founded by a former Navy SEAL, Mark Devine. And what that is great for, what research has founded is it helps you stay status quo. So if you want to amp up, have longer inhales, shorter exhales. If you want to calm down, shorter inhales, longer exhales. And if you want to stay where you are, box. Oh, that's very interesting. I did not know that. I mean, I, there's so many different like counts to, to breath, but I didn't know, like, if you want to ramp up, if you want to slow down. So that is really useful. That's your power right there. Isn't it? Like, I was yeah. like, yes, this is where my power lies. It's not behind a diagnosis It's behind. This is a tool that I can do right here, right now. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, it, it can be so scary for someone too, when they have some kind of diagnosis, like some kind of illness. Um, and even just the thought of like, well, did I bring this on myself? And that's not, that's not what we're saying. We're not like playing the blame game, but trying to help understand, help you understand that the things that happen to us that aren't necessarily our choice, oftentimes they're not can play a part in all of this. Trauma is something we did not have a choice over. Healing is where we have our choice. Mm, I love that. Right? Mm -hmm. And 
you know, diagnosis, I, if we can go on this topic for a moment, you know, this is another hot point that I usually get um, some ruffled feathers when I start to talk is, you know, diagnosis came around originally as a language for professionals to talk because they started to notice particular same patterns, right? And then it took on a life of its own when insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies came around. And now it is not what the original intention was for the people that first were around with, hey, I'm noticing these clumped behaviors because that's all it is, behaviors. This is not scientifically based. There's no biomarkers here. Mm -hmm. So it's probably one of the crudest tools that we can have to be, you know, and in my opinion, I used to get mad when I hear people like, well, they're bipolar. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. What the heck does that mean? I mean, I understand what it means. I have the diagnostic book, but in your life, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, what do I, what do you want me to do with that? You're what does bipolar mean? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier when we start to understand the root part of it. That was where our power lies. And it's not, we're not our label. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, because if you think about it, the way it's portrayed currently, how many times have you heard, I have ADHD, I can't do that. And, you know, when I was working in the school systems, I would have to reframe that. And I'd be like, what? Especially with the young kiddos, I'd be like, yes, you can. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to go about it this way. And then they learn that they're like, oh my God, I can do it. I was like, yeah. So it's just understanding that the label is only a way, is a language so that everybody can understand what behaviors are there, but it doesn't tell you what the root cause was because it's not trauma informed. It's not in context of anything, you know, and it's also now at the point where it's political. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just have to put that out there. Yeah. You know, even with something like migraines, um, I mean, like who, how can you say one person's pain is another person's pain? You know, if we're talking like physical pain, because mm-hmm. that physical pain could be a manifestation of an emotional pain. Right. And, but then no, Oh, you have face pain or you have head pain or a headache. You have migraines and you're like, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I and, and what I go to is, Oh, what's my body trying to tell me right now? Yes. And so what I really hope my hope is for the mental health field as we continue to move forward. And before I transition to the other side, whenever that may be, is to help make the mental health field more effective, more accessible, decolonized, and non-stigmatizing by getting to the root cause of everything and having it be there versus looking at it from the symptoms. Because the symptoms, what does that mean? What does mm-hmm. that get us, right? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so this is what your symptom is, but how do you help it? Like, can we get there? So, and that's what my mission is, is to keep coming on podcasts, keep talking anywhere that anybody wants to listen and to keep giving these tools so that people know you're, you're powerful. You mm-hmm. have the ability to change because a diagnosis is a snapshot in time and it does not mean it's lifelong. When you make lifestyle changes, it's not lifelong. Yeah. I love that's a perfect segue because you had mentioned about gut health and food as medicine. I'd love to touch a little bit on that, especially because my background is in fitness and nutrition and I'm totally on board. What, what do you do for gut health? What are your thoughts on gut health and how it pertains to our psychological well-being? 
I don't think you can not talk about mental health without talking about gut health, right? The two go hand in hand. Um, I think we need to make it clear though, that the brain is the command center of everything, right? And the gut is maybe second, but it's truly the brain. Okay. Because there's a lot of times I hear people saying, oh, gut is like the number one brain. I'm like, "Mm, not exactly, (laughs) not exactly. It's very influential. Absolutely. Um, you know, my personal story for it is I, I had, I have an incurable lung disease and I was told that I was going to have to be on this very expensive lifelong medication for the rest of my life. I mean, I had lung surgery when I was 18. Right. And so when I started to shift my diet to an anti-inflammatory diet, and I really started to focus on how my body responded to certain foods and like good or bad. I'm not on any pharmaceutical medicine day to day anymore. None. And I was somebody who always used to have like five or six prescriptions going a month. And, you know, when I went to the doctor, one of the last times they were like, what did you do? And I said, I went Buddha on you. And they're like, no, seriously, what'd you do? And I was like, I went Buddha on you. I learned how to manage my stress differently. I learned how to eat differently. And those foods matter. Mm -hmm. And it's understanding what fuels you. It's understanding what causes the inflammation to go down and it's understanding what is the brain food, right? That makes you more alert and allows those brain chemicals to discharge when they need to discharge. Mm -hmm. But I also think, um, and I'm not sure if you agree with this or not, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Um, but I don't think we can talk about gut health without talking about circadian rhythm and sleep. 100%. 100%. Yeah. If you're not sleeping, like you're not digesting food properly, no matter what you put in your gut. Right. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, that's the other big thing is for me, if I had to give anybody advice for who's burnt out is get on a routine, a schedule for your circadian rhythm. Um, and another research, um, backed out of Stanford university again, um, I believe it was the Huberman lab correct me if I'm wrong, but um, what they found is if you are getting sunlight in your eyes within the first, I think it was like the first 20 minutes of waking up, that sets your circadian rhythm clock in one direction. And then if you are outside at night around sunset time and you do it again and get that sun going in, it sets your circadian clock to go down again. And so that sets your rhythm. And we are based on rhythms. Mm-hmm. Our entire system is a rhythm. And so the more we're able to continue with that rhythm in a consistent way, that is when our sleep gets better. And that's when all of our systems operate the way they need to. Our digestion is amazing. And then we're able to really absorb those nutrients that we need in our microbiome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, sleep hygiene is everything. And one of the best ways to, to set that circadian rhythm, like you said, and like the studies have shown is go for a walk in the morning and go for a walk after dinner right? doesn't have to be some big, massive, long walk, like 10, 20 minutes, be out in nature. I mean, if you're not sleeping, your nervous system is turned on. If your nervous right. system is turned on, your digestion is turned off. Right. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and you know what I also realized too, and I'm interested to hear if this has been your journey too. Um, sometimes when people are waking up in the middle of the night and their minds are racing, It's not because of the stress that they think it is like, yeah, your mind's fixated on this thing. 
like maybe your whatever's going on at work, but it could also be that your blood sugar level drops so low that it puts your body in a stress state. Mm -hmm. And when your body goes in a stress state, your brain gets fixated on things. So sometimes it's about understanding your blood sugar level and knowing how to keep it consistent. And this is part of that anti-inflammatory diet, right? Mm -hmm. And then understanding that, okay, if I stay consistent with that, then my blood level sugars won't drop and I'll be able to sleep better through the night. And you realize, oh, I'm not waking up freaking out about anything. So I thought that was pretty big. Yeah. You know, I, I'm also a big proponent of having a good three to four hours where you're not eating before bed to allow for proper digestion, but that means you need to eat enough during the day. Right. Exactly. You have to eat enough. And that's what you're talking about. Their blood sugar levels. Mm -hmm. Like if you feel like you have to have a snack before bed, you haven't eaten enough during the day. Right. And I found for my own personal journey, it was, I needed more protein. Yeah. It was the protein that I, you know, I was eating a lot of veggies, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got that down pat, but I wasn't having enough protein. And when I have enough protein, I don't need to eat right before bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for everyone, it's different depending on what, you know, flavor right. of, of diet they're following or, you know, I think it just comes back to being balanced, right? Like <laughs> you, you need to have a balanced plate. What are some of these, um, kind of brain foods that you talked about? So personally, I'm huge with the salmon, like wild caught salmon, you know, not farm raised wild caught salmon, you know, and then there's the avocados. MCT oil is another good one. Um, almonds, you know, not all, not peanuts, but the almonds or even the Brazilian nuts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll get into that. Um, but probiotics, probiotics, fermented foods, you know, um, research at a Duke university that just came out, talked about if you had two to three servings a day of fermented food, it lowered the brain inflammation drastically. Interesting. So get going on that fermented food, whether it's sauerkraut or like kefir, like get going on it. Yep. Yep. And you know, sometimes people can't handle a lot of fermented foods in the beginning, but it's usually because there's underlying gut issues. Exactly. Right. And I have to be honest on my own journey. This didn't happen overnight. I'm Italian. I love pasta. I love like cheese. And this took me having compassion for myself. And so, and this is what I always make sure I tell my clients or when I'm working with people to say, this is about compassion. This is the process. It's two Mm -hmm. steps forward, two steps back, the cha-cha dance, right? And as long as you're moving in the direction going forward towards your goal in time, because little steps lead to big steps. This is not about perfection. This is about progress. And that's the key here. And so it took me probably a good year to start to really adjust my diet. Like I did a um, reset cleanse right? Where I went down a bare minimum. I stuck it out for the 10 days that I did it for. And that Mm -hmm. was hard. I mean, that was no coffee, no, (laughs) no nothing. And, um, then I went back and I started to eat normal, like how I was before. And then little by little, I removed things, but I also added things in and I was focusing more on what I was adding in than what I was taking away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you found caused the most inflammation for you? that you had to take out of your diet? It was pretty much everything that I love to tell you the truth. Um, (laughs) 
Um, I am no longer on dairy. I, I know I have coffee in my hands right now, but I typically do not even drink coffee anymore. I have no caffeine. Um, also, I'm going to say it's those processed foods, like the fried foods, you know, that definitely hurt, hurt me a lot. Mm -hmm. So when I remove the processed foods and the sugar, the coffee and the dairy and even the alcohol, because I was prone to have some wine, Mm -hmm. drastic shift, drastic shift. And my body is, it's just calmer. Mm. I don't know how else to explain it. It's a feeling. I don't know how to explain well, other than my baseline is truly calm. Like I can feel like when I'm meditating, it's almost like I'm meditating all the time, that kind of inside calm. Mm. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah. Dairy is such a big trigger for me as well. And I mean, it's mucus forming. So it just like, it doesn't work for a lot of people, unfortunately. No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I even went down oat milk, almond milk. Like I tried any kind of milk, right? I got away from pasteurized cow milk a long time ago, but Mm -hmm. I I realized now even almond milk, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, that leads me to our fun questions for the episode. I always like to end the episode (laughs) with some fun questions are are about food. If you were stranded on a desert Island and could only pick one food to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, one, like I couldn't make a meal. I can only eat one. No, you could like, if it was like tacos, you could say tacos. Oh, okay. Cause I mean, originally my initial thought was avocados. I would want to eat avocados. Um, but it would also be if it's a meal that like a prepared meal that I could have for the rest of my life, it would be, oh, salmon and a mixed veggie plate. Mm. That's funny. The rainbows, the rainbows in my veggies. Yeah. Yes. What is the best meal you've ever eaten? Oh, it's a steak. (laughs) It's a steak. I used to work at um, a steakhouse when I was in grad school. I was a server, right? And um, they had these, their steaks were grass-fed, grass-finished, and um, really good. I That with a crab cake and some mashed potatoes and asparagus. That is probably not what I could eat now, but that was the best meal I've ever had. Surf and turf. <laughs> that actually sounds delicious. <laughs> I don't really eat steak, but it does sound delicious. (laughs) You know, I tried to go vegan. I did do that for a period of time. And I realized my body, I mean, because the other thing with gut health is to eat for your heritage, right? Mm -hmm. And being Italian. And then I do have some French Canadian in me as well. So I need meat. I realized I do need meat. And steak seems to be the thing that I'm okay with at the moment. Or Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say steak, meat, red meat, period is okay for my body. I actually feel replenished when I have it. I don't eat it every day, nothing like that. But when I have it one to two times a week, I feel good. We need it for our hormones as women. A lot of us, right. Especially like when you first start menstruating, Mm -hmm. like get that red meat in. Yep. That's usually when I'm eating it. (laughs) I'm like, I need it. I know it. Yeah. Yeah. And like something like elk is, is the highest in tryptophan, right? Mm -hmm. So that that's a precursor to serotonin. So it makes you feel good, right? Calm. It calms your brain. It's yeah. like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. What is your least favorite food? 
peas. Peas. Hands Wait. down. It, it's been since I was a kid. I mean, I would, yeah, no, I would have to like hold my nose while I was eating it and put it in the mashed potatoes. Um, mashed potatoes I don't know and peas. It, yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the texture now. I I just I still can't like I can eat green beans, but mm. I can't have peas. So, Interesting. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite restaurant? You want know something interesting? Since the pandemic hit, I've learned to cook on a whole nother level than I've ever learned how to prepare my food, and. I don't think I can go back to a restaurant setting anymore. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, because I notice now how clean my food is when I have cooked it, right? Because I use the avocado oil, right? You know, and I don't know if I can. I have no desire to go back. When I think of going back to those restaurants that I used to love, mm. does not bring me any joy or excitement. And if I ate it, I felt sick afterwards. Like I didn't feel good. So I'm going to say, I don't know if I'm ever going back unless it's a real organic, um, clean, you know, I think there was one opening up in New York city actually. So I might try that one, but other than that, I don't know if I am. Yeah. You really do realize when you cook for yourself and you're using all the anti-inflammatory oils that when you go out, you just like, it doesn't matter how healthy the restaurants say they are like there's oils, there's so much salt, there's so much sugar. And it it tastes good in the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm going to say this too. I had, um, so cheese fries was my go-to when I was at the height of my burnout. I had cheese fries recently and I was like, no, doesn't do it for me the way that it used to. So I think that's something people need to understand about their gut too. The Mm -hmm. foods you crave over time, if you shift your diet, you start to crave those healthy foods. You don't you stay really do. stuck craving those old foods. You start to crave those new foods. So yeah. um, I think I jumped, I'm on the other hump, on the other yeah. side of the hump now. <laughs> I know, like, could you imagine like passing, like going for to eat like a Kit Kat instead of like this like nice piece of dark chocolate or like, Yeah, I couldn't. Mm-mm. No, because I look at it and I'm like, no, that's not even real. <laughs> like not it's even just- real. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your favorite travel destination that you've been to? San Diego. Oh, what did I you do there? there too? So very cool. Um, yeah. What are some of your favorite books that you would recommend? When I was teaching, um, there was, in addition to the textbooks, I would always recommend or suggest the students read the four agreements um, by Don Miguel Ruiz. And then I would also recommend Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, now, if I was teaching, cause the book just came out, it'd be what happened to you with Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah, Ooh. because if you want to know more about that developmental trauma that we were talking about, that's your book. Um, and last but not least, the body keeps the score yes. by yep. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. So, yeah. Yeah. I actually just bought that a month ago. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense for sure. It is. Yeah. It is. But it's also the, probably the most informative, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a big read. There's <laughs> a yeah. lot of words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just going to take the summer off of school and get this book. You're like, gosh, I'm right back at my textbook. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> what is the happiest moment of your life? That is a really great question. I think you're going to stump me on this one. It was a moment. And I don't know if I can describe the moment other than that feeling that I had inside of me. And it was the moment that I knew that I fully stepped into my own undeniable truth. And I was not afraid of anybody else's opinions or thoughts about it. And I was completely comfortable in my own skin. Mm. Mm. I feel like that's what everyone is looking for. Heck yeah, they are. I know that. I mean, I don't, you know, out of like, I must have seen, I don't know how many clients at this point in my career or oversaw, right, families between being a director and everything. And honestly, I think everybody just wants to be that, you know, like be so comfortable in their own skin where they're able to just live their life the way they want to, not how they're conditioned to be. And just like, I love how you said, like, where you're not afraid of anyone's opinion. Mm -hmm. Like that's so powerful. It was powerful the first time I felt it. Heck yeah. And it is powerful now. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you like to leave with our listeners in regard to their health? Listen to your body trust what your body's telling you, even if you may not understand the specific of what it's telling you, like you can't um, translate it quite yet. But if something feels off, listen to that. And if something feels good, listen to that. And you are the captain of your ship. You have the power to steer this any which way that you want it to go. And you are powerful and you are worthy of having that life you deserve. Mm, Love that. Where can people find you? I am on Instagram and Facebook at the burnout professor and the burnout professors, the period burnout period professor. I also have a clubhouse on clubhouse and um, it's the biggest one for burnout and stress. So come on and join us. It's called the burnout club. And then I'm also on LinkedIn at the burnout professor. Wonderful. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. I love the topics that we covered from like the physical stuff that we can do from the psychological stuff and and gut health. I love how you just tied all of that in. It's so informative. No, and thank you for having me. I truly enjoyed our conversation and it's always a pleasure to talk with like-minded individuals, right? It's always a great conversation because we don't have to argue our points. So to Mm. say that when I say argue, I'm using that term loosely. We don't have to defend and we don't have to try to convince anybody. Right. And I've learned if I could say anything, don't convince anybody of anything, go where it flows and go find your tribe. Mm, Love that. Well, thank you again for coming on. And I look forward to staying in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. Stay tuned for future episodes and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Always remember, you are powerful over your health.